Number two. Number two. As we people say, hmm? people say that about our podcast quite a bit. This sounds like number two. <laughs> Aww. Aww. Boo. Sad. So this will be part two of the infamous you and Dan drunkenly rolling around on the floor in the monkey room. <laughs> uh, we weren't rolling around on the floor. Well, Dan is a little roly-poly just in, in general. In general. But, yeah. Um, it was a lot of gesticulating with a... Uh, with a tumbler full of Manhattan. Mm-hmm. That's uh, that was what his problem was. I will point out if you listen carefully, about twelve minutes in to this, you do hear the sounds of some ice cubes and a drink being mixed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and the conversation doesn't end. It's very. It's still. It's that's flowing well, and the drinks are flowing well. But mm-hmm. what is that background sound? Oh, that's that's a tumbler and and some ice. Okay, there we go. Yeah, that was. Those were the days. Mm-hmm. So this one, as opposed to the last, which was more about the math and the science behind drying, which, you know, we've all hung a towel out to dry. How hard is it? But it's 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 harder. Uh, This is about the actual physicality of it, I'll say. Yes. Yeah. Building something. Correct. How how do I say all the ways that you think you've got an end, like like you've already solved the problem that that nobody else has figured out. Like you see the thing (laughs) that nobody else has has ever seen in the history of drying hops and you're going to, you're going to revolutionize the industry. Um, No, you're not. Uh, There's very few things that you can actually do to, (laughs) to, to really change the dynamic and hop drying. So just get over that right now. And it's all about stick to these fundamentals. Mm-hmm. reduce the number of variables in the system that already has too many variables because you've zoned out on them already. Just keep it simple. Right. I don't know what else to say about that. That's what it was about. It, it was. It was about how, how to and, – and implementation, I'll say. The second one was more about oh, you sure. know, how, to, how to actually do something as opposed to the first one, which to your point, people zone out after – it's a lot of math. It's not yep. complicated math, Mm-mm. but it's a lot of but math. It, it's a drying – it's not just as it relates to hops, but just in general. They, on the surface, it seems like a very simple concept in one's mind. And from a thermodynamics or science standpoint, it is a simple concept. However, when you start to uncover all the variables that go into it, suddenly what you were comfortable with in your mind mm-hmm. <laughs> is, is now different. And that sort of, it's, it's discordant and one shuts one's brain off because it wasn't <laughs> what you had told yourself it was going to be mm-hmm. so uh there's one of two things happens there you either double down on your oversimplified view of how this is going to work and you do it and it fails or you take a pause and really dig into it and and swallow your pride and figure out how to do it right sure sure and you know i don't think we ever talk about this in those episodes but there's the there's the enormous gap this is one of those things just like most things that, that is not linear and if you are doing a little bit of hops in the backyard and you're learning, oh, drying's not hard. I lay them out on a screen. It's all good. But when you get up to volumes and it doesn't work that way anymore, um, this is very much a hockey stick in terms of the complexity and the uh, how critical timing is in the whole thing. Mm-hmm. So we yep. get into quite a bit of that as well. Timing, scale, how your, your drying operation interfaces with your harvesting operation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and how all of these various things, more, yet more variables in the overall workflow from harvesting through really pre-processing, hinges on your ability to dry. And not, not just the, the, your technical ability to do it, but all of the logistical workflow issues therein. So as one scales, 
that can't be taken for granted. You need a freaking project manager, really. Totally. Absolutely. <laughs> So Dan's back. Mm. Do we have to do this again? We, we, we do. And in, in fairness, uh, Dan never left. Welcome back, Dan. So part two here for drying. In the first part, which hopefully you've listened to, we talked all about the science of drying, why you dry, um, the, the chemical and the, the airflow reasons and why you need to get those hops down to the correct moisture content. But now we're going to get into the, the hammers and nails side of thing and how you actually physically get that drying process going and what you need to put together. So Dan's just going to rattle off a list of all the parts, right, Dan? 14 three-penny nails, seven boxes of outdoor-rated decking screws. Are we building it out of lumber or aluminum? Don't let Dan fool you. He's never built anything that doesn't involve duct tape, expanding foam, and bailing wire. Well, yeah, because it helps when my perfect box isn't quite so perfectly boxish. Mm, mm-hmm. But Greg, you're right. I mean, we talked about a lot of theory, and now it's time to put that theory into action. I think Dan, ultimately, what it comes down to is some sort of box. It does. And the question I always get first is, how big of a box do I build? Mm. And the answer usually is, oh well. I can only afford a box this big, so that's all I'm going to build. <laughs> that will that Greg will will touch on the financials of Oast construction maybe later, but that is important. But I mean, as a grower and farm whatever grand poobah, I look at it and I say, this is my harvest mechanism. So how fast am I removing cones from a vine? Yep, that need to be dried, and that's the key, because how big do you want to build your Oast? Your dryer. Your, Greg kind of mentioned this in the last podcast. An oast, a dryer, a hop dryer, a hop house, a kiln. The only one of those words that I don't like to describe the thing is kiln. Yeah, because that, a kiln is something where you heat something up until it melts. That's where you dry bricks, right? That's where bricks right. are in pot vases, uh, vases. Yeah, I'm thinking of pottery class in eighth grade. Yeah, no. Yeah, If you ever use kiln in front of me, I turn around and walk away. Any other word, I'm fine with. So the question always becomes, I I say, well, how many hops are you going to harvest? And the answer is always, well, I've got an acre. Greg, how many hops do I get off of an acre to dry? Well, I'm going to use the famous James line. It depends. What does it depend on? Yeah, 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 yeah. What does it depend on, Willy boy? Depends on the age of your acre and the and the yield you're getting. You know how how much is actually coming out of that acre. It depends on how many different varieties you've got going on because you do have the staging factor. You can only dry so much at a time, mm-hmm. and if all of your hops are coming off your yard at once and have to be dried at once, good luck to you. Well, you got to be able to harvest them, right? I mean, you got to be able to harvest them, so you've got to build to that volume in terms of your drying. Right. But if you're able to stage that harvest, which you can't force it, you can't force staging the harvest. You've got to harvest when you've got to harvest. But you can say, oh, I've got three acres that I need to dry. If those three acres are three varieties that are going to harvest, you know, two weeks apart each, that's a much different answer than I've got three acres of cascade that all has to come off at once. 
So it's really about pounds. We're, we're talking in absolutes here where it's the ideal condition and the condition is never ideal in reality. So ultimately you want to say, okay, like just like Dan said, it depends on how much you can harvest at any given time. That determines how big your dryer is because are you harvesting at – you're not harvesting 24-7. But let's say you're harvesting for 10 to 12 hours a day. How many hops are you going to produce? How many binds are you running through your machine? We'll talk about this later. But for Dan to be able to tell people, how big of a dryer do I need? I need to know how much you can harvest in one day. That's what it comes down to. Or whatever period of time the, where you load your dryer right. and you're like, it's done. I'm closing it off and I'm firing it up, right? Exactly. Okay. Because if you bring in... 10 of your friends, relatives, or paid lackeys, wherever you can find people to help you harvest, and you're, you plan on having them working for 10 hours that day, and you tell them, I'm going to pay you for 10 hours this day, but then you run out of room because you built your dryer too small at six hours, do you think you're going to get them to all come back tomorrow to harvest for you? Heck no, because you only got paid for six hours when they set aside a whole day. Let's go to the opposite of the spectrum. If you hire these people to come in and pick for you, or you have a machine that picks for you, and you only fill that dryer half full, well, now you just paid to build a dryer twice as big as what you need. So I tell people, figure out your harvest rate, figure out what's the maximum amount that you're going to have to dry in one day in volume, not in pounds or anything like that, in volume, and build that dryer the same size as that maximum yield. Now, when you talk about scalability, though, Dan, you got to be careful because you, if you build a dryer which only you can only half fill it up this year, if you're only in year two and you've got some growing to do in years down the road, that dryer is probably too small a year or two later. So you've got this ever-evolving situation and scalability to be concerned with. I believe that is why over the years I built eight or nine different variants of our dryer as we kept getting bigger and bigger. Let me right? interject here. Dan suggested changes. James built the dryers. No! <laughs> I have physical scars on my body to prove... That you opened envelopes that contained... Yeah, I understand how <laughs> actual engineers, they don't do anything. So Okay. Well, that said, I did say from the start, I'm an engineer, not a carpenter. And let me tell you that when we disassembled our first ever prototype low-temperature dryer, we took all of the screws out of it Yep. and could not get it apart because the expanding foam Dan used is apparently a structural component. It's sealed up properly. <laughs> and for the record, when we took all those screws out, Cheap James made me reuse every single one in prototype number two. Of course. And three and four. It's something about the spirit of, of ingenuity there. Yeah. But anyway, Greg, to your point, it's all about scalability. And we had this issue. I guess our issue is slightly different historically when we were... Not only were we growing, uh, or the, I should say the company expanding and our acreage expanding, we were also prototyping methodologies. And so when people think that this, oh, this, you know, hop drying, no problem, everything these guys are talking about is, is like 
you know, textbook stuff. The things we learned, the numbers that we wrote down, the testing that we did is a decade old at most. Mm-hmm. And that blows people's minds. They're like, well, how can that be? We've been using hops and beer for, you know, since 1252. Uh-huh. I get it. But nothing is actually published. I shouldn't say nothing. Very little. And we learn. And we learn how to learn as time goes on. So, to, I mean, to your point, I think, Dan, I know you were only half joking with eight or nine dryers. You know, it's a different dryer or different design every season as we come up with more efficient ideas, as the, the size and structure of our crop changes, um, and we need to stage different varieties at different times and whatnot. So we were constantly evolving, and I'd have to say, with all the things that we did running the farm, whether it was harvest or irrigation or drying, drying was probably the one that went, underwent the most changes over time from learning, that we really couldn't... Well, we could learn year to year, but we really did rebuild that process year after year with our learnings. And it really was. We got one shot a year. And I can't tell you how many times my colleagues at universities reach out to me, Dr. Holly, to ask me, you know, hey, we want to I've got an engineering group, ag engineering. They want to build a hop dryer. They, there's no hops around. What can they test it on? Nothing. Nothing. The closest I ever found was Brussels sprouts. I said carnations. Yeah. Right? Carnations good. But then they went and priced carnations and holy balls. Right. They're like, we can't afford it. I'm like, "Mm mm-hmm. Brussels sprouts are the same. So what do you do? It's like flying by instrument at that point where you say, this is what the math says, and we've designed around that. Now let's put it in a real-world scenario and you have six weeks, six weeks of harvest availability to test and respond. So that means if you are on your game, you have one shot to revise your system and test again. If I recall variation uh, prototype two, three, and four, I think they were all in the same year in that same six weeks. It Probably. got built, ripped apart, rebuilt, ripped apart, rebuilt. Maybe Greg... We can write this down. We can talk about lessons learned sometime in November. Or maybe we need to do it after the first of the year when the sting of harvest and Mother Nature is gone, where we can talk about lessons learned and what the tuition we paid at the University of Mother Nature actually cost us. I think, think we're still feeling the effects of that one. I don't know. I haven't been paid. So the answer is yes. <laughs> So, <laughs> yeah. but anyway, so all those are extremely good points where we have to know how much we're actually harvesting in any given time frame. Because if you listen to our earlier podcast, you can't wait two or three days to harvest up enough to turn your dryer on. Even for our scale on our, what we called our field lab, which was, you know, we had 60 acres there. We would get hops harvested and load it into the dryer and have the fans turned on low just to get air moving through them until we actually said, harvest is done, turn the dryer on. Dan, what are your comments about that? Well, my first piece of advice is have more than 100 amps on your farm so you can run both dryers, the harvester, (laughs) and the beer fridge at the same time. 
because none of the, none of those are optional. No, no, they're not. No, not whatsoever. No, no, yeah, especially not the beer fridge. But yeah, it's it's absolutely essential. I mean, re- reviewing first thing you need to figure out is how much you can harvest in one day. What's your maximum yield? That's going to dictate the size of the box you're building. Now, the next thing, if you remember from the last podcast, we talked about bed depth. The deeper that bed is, the more pressure drop there is, the more resistance to airflow there is, and the more mm, variability there is from the top to the bottom, more stratification. Mm -hmm. So you really want to go as shallow as possible, but it's a volume, right? Volume is area times, well, it's width times length times height. So if you're reducing height, you got to increase, well, width, length, or both. Right. So now, do I want a one-inch deep bed that's the size of my entire farm? Or do I want to go four feet deep and only one foot by one foot? Somewhere in the middle. One of the things, Dan, I think that industry-wide, and even our friend Dan Carey at New Glarus, not only is he one of the best brewers on the planet, but he's also a good friend and says it like it is. One of the the biggest things that we as a group have contributed, according to Dan, to the hop industry is freely sharing what the bulk density of hops are. Because people say, well, I don't know how much volume I have. I'm I'm expecting, you know, a thousand or 15 or 2000 pounds per acre. I don't know what that means. 1.3 pounds per cubic foot at 8% moisture content is the bulk density of hops, write it down, take it to the bank. My Aussie friends, do the conversion. You're smart. I know you can do it. Google's there for you. Put it in your communist units. So that's the story. 1.3 pounds per cubic foot is the bulk density of hops at 8% moisture content. For those of you who are mathematically challenged, wet weight is going to be around 5.3 pounds per cubic foot. But again, that depends upon your moisture content. So think about that. How much of that weight? You're losing almost 5X? Yep. It's gone. Shit balls. That's just water weight. Exactly. And it's water weight that you got to get rid of in a reasonable amount of time. I'm going to make an ancillary comment here about just harvest and yard setup, and that's the weight of those binds of hops, if you've never dealt with it before, make sure your drying area is close to your field. Extremely good point. Let's put some uh, some caveats in here. With the smallest wolf harvester that anybody can really commercially find, which is a Wolf 140, it will do between a third and a half of an acre of mature production on a V trellis at 12 foot centers. See all those caveats? In a reasonable 10-hour harvest period. So people say, well, well, James, I, I, you're, you're not hitting anywhere near that yield because I'm only getting 200 pounds dry out of that. And you're getting how much? Well, it's because my hops were being commercial yield and your hops were not. But the harvester only runs at a certain rate regardless of what your yield is. It's, it's a bind per time rate, Correct. not a cone per time rate. If that bind has a half a pound, a pound, or a pound and a half, it doesn't matter. It's one bind per 30 seconds or whatever your harvest rate is. And I've seen this time and time again, and certainly with our friends in central Wisconsin, 
they're saying, well, we need a third harvester. You know, we've already got two Wolf 220s and we're not keeping up. And I look at it and I'm saying, well, they're missing every other hook. Why? That's not acceptable. So if, if it's a harvest rate issue, slow the machine down 20% and you're actually going to end up picking up 80% efficiency because you're hitting every hook. All of a sudden, when we do that, the dryer went from a third full to holy balls. We got to go from we got to go from a third of a dryer to a dryer and a third with that one single change, Greg. And I don't it's those simple things that people just they're like, well, how big how big of an issue is this really? How big of a downstream impact can this have? It's enormous. It's a great point about how mechanically inclined and how much you need to understand the math and the science behind all these things because a a very counterintuitive thing there slowing down your harvester will increase your efficiency and then you look at your your oast and your drying setup and it's the same thing if you don't understand your airflow rates and your design and all that you can be very inefficient in the way you're doing that as well which can take increased time and then you've got a backlog and then you end up with all those same problems we've discussed so the the this idea of maybe factors we take for granted saying well this this fan dried my corn yeah right Why no problem drying my house yeah well it's a big fan dan it's like five feet tall. Oh, it's enormous. All right, let's talk about fans. So we picked our hops. You know your volume. Now you got to decide how deep am I going to make it? How big am I going to make this box? I am going to urge everybody, if you're writing this down, if you got a piece of paper, if you got a child next to you, write this on their forehead. Two feet. Don't go more than two feet for the first, I don't know, 10 years? two-thirds of a meter 0.667 meters i'd say more like 0.62 meters oh, okay it's about 4238 beard seconds mm. look that up it's right. a unit of measure beer seconds yeah beard not yep. beer beard no beard seconds beard yeah. seconds mm-hmm. okay so do not go more than two feet deep why because when you are selecting a fan it's based on cfm and pressure drops CF, what's CFM? What's CFM? What's CFM? Cubic feet per minute. It's the volume of air. What is that in metric? God knows. As an old coworker of mine said, the best filter you can find is a cement block. Oh, concrete's a great filter. It's, it's not going to let any dirt through. It's not going to let any air through either, but it's not going to let any dirt through. So when you're ready to pick your fan, you've determined your bed depth. So let's say that you have decided you're going to go two feet deep and four foot by four foot, right? But why have you decided you're going two feet deep? Because Dan said, don't go deeper than two feet. So what happens if I go only one foot deep? Mm-hmm. Hey, that's going to be easier. Less pressure drop. Oh, so there's less resistance to the air. Right. But okay. what happened to the size of your bed? Well, Pick. the area's got to double, right? If I went from two feet to one foot... That volume's still the same, so I gotta spread it out to a bigger area. So Greg, Greg just took over the other half of the garage. Exactly, uh, the master bedroom. How's that gonna work out for you, pal? Uh, probably not very happy people in my house when that happens. No, homeowner association, be damned. Park your cars on the street. Mm. 
Okay, so let's say that I have a four foot by four foot by two foot deep bed. Or make it a one foot deep bed that would be four foot by eight foot. Okay. And, and I know Greg, I can't see Greg, but he's going, oh, math, my head hurts. He's a statistician. I'm a math oh, he's looking. He's looking at you saying, poor engineer, what an <laughs> idiot. You really have to stick to single digit numbers to do the math thing? <laughs> I'm 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 two point seven metric bourbons into the evening. He just took his shoes off, so we know it's getting <laughs> oh. deep. Imagery, please. Mm. All right. But this ratio, Dan, between bed depth and bed area is critical because people say, Well, I want to cram it in this corner and it's gonna be eight feet deep and three foot by three foot. You'll never get through it. Ever without having such a gigantic fan that you will have the sheriff showing up because, frankly, it came off of 727. Exactly. However, if you say, honey, I'm going to back my car out for the next three weeks and I'm going to run at six inches. Then only the divorce attorney is going to show up and not the sheriff. So it's that idea that, should I say, the shallower the bed depth, the less horsepower Right. That's needed in order to get air through this blowing or pulling. However, let me be devil's advocate here because I know Greg's going here too, is fine. I'm going to spread this thing out to two inches deep and it's going to be a half an acre wide. Woohoo! God bless you, Greg. <laughs> so here's my thing though. How... Wait, wait, Greg, do you have that much property? No. Ooh. That's a problem. Well, yeah, that he's a, he's a peasant. I'd, I have plenty of land. So and I'd want to grow more hops is, if I had that much land. <laughs> right? right? You would. So here's my thing is when you say that, all right, thinner is better, but then if I'm spreading it out so far, how do I – I would think that uniformity is a problem. Well, it's not just uniformity. It'll be the sure CFM, the volume of air that you'd have to move. Okay, what does that mean? Explain that. All right, so let's think of it this way. If I had, let's go back to two feet deep and four foot by four foot. All right, so my area is four times four, 16. Did I get that right, Greg? Yes. Now. Does it, that metric 16 or imperial 16? That would be God's units. Okay. Imperial. All right. Okay. All right, so it's 16 square feet. Now I need to get to cubic feet per minute. All right. Well, what were those velocities I was talking about in the last podcast? If I was blowing up one foot per second, if I was coming down two, three, maybe four feet per second, let's just take that one foot per second because after 2.7 metric bourbons, that's about the biggest math I can handle. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to move air through this hotbed at one foot per second. So 16 square feet times one foot per second gives me 16 feet per second. I'm almost there. Here's the big one, Greg. How many seconds in a minute? Oh, around 60, give or take. These are these are standard imperial seconds, these not are, metric seconds. Oh, God that, that seconds. would be exactly 60. Oh, there you go. Right, right. So I now have 16 feet cubed per second times 60 is shit. Denominator. <laughs> Six times. Greg? Carry, 32, carry the 3, carry 6, the, 90. Divide by 920. Children. 960. 60. 960. Yeah, I did get it right. Mm -hmm. Okay, so if I've got 4 by 4, so 16 square feet 
for the area that the air is seeing as a face times one foot per second, that's 16 cubic feet per second, times 60 seconds per minute, I come up with 960 CFM. Cubic feet per, per minute. minute. That is the volume of air that I need to pass through that hotbed. Now, if I were to drop that hotbed to only one foot and make it twice as big, mm-hmm. I now need 1,920 cubic feet per minute. Oh, because I'm expanding the surface area. Exactly. So uh-huh. I need more air to cover that entire area. But the the surface area increases, but the resistance to the air flowing through the bed decreases. Right, which becomes really critical when you go to buy a fan. You suck. Or steal. <laughs> or borrow. So, Dan, when I, you know, a fan that's going to work for this, it sounds like I can go to Walmart and get a box fan for about 30 bucks, right? Well, they do like 2,000 CFM, dude. Whoa, whoa, wait a minute. 30 bucks for a box fan at Walmart? Greg, I'll sell you one for 19. <laughs> and I'll still make a profit. It fell off a truck. It's, it's, su- it's right. summer, they're 30. In the winter, they're 19. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'll... Your typical standard plastic box fan will move 3,000 CFM at zero inches pressure drop, at zero static what is pressure. That, what does that mean? That is a measurement of the resistance of air to flow through the hotbed. So that's the air blasting out my window to keep me cool while I'm exactly. sleeping. There's okay. nothing standing in its way. It can just flow. Right. Right. So now... If you go with um, the typical herbal drying method... Oh, wait, that's right. We can say marijuana. We can say pot. Okay, so if you are going and creating your bud dryer, mm-hmm. a common bud dryer is to take a furnace filter, put your flowers on it, put a second filter on top of it, and then strap it onto a box fan. And you're getting maybe it, 10%? Maybe 10, 15 if you're lucky, probably 5. You are moving air through it, but nowhere near the 3,000 CFM that you started... Because that box fan is what we call an axial fan, which cannot handle very much static pressure drop. Usually. Usually. There are special axial fans, as I understand, that will do that, but let's not digress. Okay. Because there's one hanging on my wall at work. (laughs) And I just built one for another hop grower, so shut your trap. Okay. So axial fans can work. However, just let me give you a perspective. The $30 fan you buy at Walmart for everything, the Mm. frame, the blade, the switch, the box, the plastic bubble wrap that it comes in. Yep. Not going to do it. The axial blades that we used in in building dryers or fans for for hot dryers will cost just the blade $1,000. Because they're kind of closer to helicopter propeller blades. They're like airfoils, yeah. right? Yeah. So when we say that, oh, yeah, you can't do it with an axial fan, and, and farmers out there will be like, I use an axial tube axial fan for drying grain. Why can't I use this for hops? This is more of a, yeah, but. Right. Right? So when you go to buy a fan, steal a fan, borrow a fan, whatever fan you're going to get, if you're buying a fan, you're going to call the dealer, and you're going to say, okay, I need 960 CFM. And he's going to say, okay, at what pressure drop? Basically, what's the resistance that this fan's going to be seeing? Because the bigger the resistance, the more the CFM is going to fall off. So that's where you have to come up with a number. And guess what? Well, before we started this, there was no number out there. This is why I'm telling you to stop at two feet, because the pressure drop increases. It's somewhat exponential. So 
zero to one to two feet, it isn't bad. Once you pass two feet, it starts going through the roof, and you'll be you'll be hurting. Up to two feet, plan on a half an inch of pressure drop for just the hops. Mm -hmm. Now, bear in mind, when you are forcing air to turn a corner, when you're forcing air to accelerate too fast, when you're forcing air through a tiny orifice, when you're doing anything to the air except for letting it freely flow forward, that's adding pressure drop as well. Oh, wait. okay, right. So if I'm like, oh, dude, I'm going to put these hops in my garage and I'm going to make this cardboard ductwork that goes from the window under my hop bed and I'm going to stick a fan in the window. All those little bends and all those little things and then the tiny little orifice that I'm pushing air through adds to the resistance to the airflow. You're not going to see one ounce of airflow. So the fan is just running, the motor's running, and eventually it's going to burn out. Not eventually, pretty quickly. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So plan on two feet or less. Start looking for fans that can do at least one inch pressure drop to account for everything else. And what you're going to find, there's very few axial fans that can do it. For the most part, you're going to do what we call a centrifugal fan or a squirrel cage fan. Very similar to what you find in your furnace. Right. So it's that instead of a propeller going around, it looks like a little cage that you might cram a gerbil into and make it run around, 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 around. So the ones that are like in our exhaust hoods or fans uh, over top of our stoves, uh, things like that. So those are designed differently. And they can handle more pressure drop? They certainly can. Because think about it. Your house has a whole bunch of ductwork. And it doesn't just start in the basement and go straight up and open up. It goes up. It goes over. It goes here. It goes there. It breaks into smaller trunks. It goes all over. Those fans can handle two, three, sometimes even four inches of pressure drop before you start seeing any major degradation. Mm -hmm. So... Something like an old furnace fan, or even better, getting something off of an old commercial HVAC unit. That's something that you're kind of looking for. It's going to cost you a little bit more. It's going to have, you know, probably a one or two horsepower, maybe even a five horsepower motor if you're, you know, even the people who are just starting out. So plan on that for the electricity. But that's going to give you the airflow, the CFM, and the ability to handle the pressure drop that you need. And we've said this before about other parts of this process, but this is an area where you don't skimp. You need to do this right. It's also an area where just like with your harvester and anything else, if thing I shouldn't say if, when things break mid-season, yes. you must be able to fix this now. I'll give you a couple of watch outs. Mm-hmm. So a lot of you will think, oh, I'll just go get a bunch of old HVAC furnace f- fans. So all those old, you go to your scrap dealer and they're like, oh, I got all these fans laying around. That's right. Old furnace, you know, hey, Dan said, you know, these types of centrifugal fans are great. They'll work. The problem is there's two problems. One, they're usually too small. So you're going to have to get two or three of them. The second problem, all those little curved blades. Yep. The hops get through and they get caught in there. Do you know how you remove those? With a torch. Exactly. You wait six <laughs> months for them to all dry out. You pull out your favorite little rosebud propane torch mm-hmm. and you burn them out because you sure as heck aren't going to pick them out. Yeah, hops can find their way into every aspect and little cre- crevice and crack and your marriage and other things. <laughs> so. So that means if you need two furnace fans, get yourself four. 
If you need one big one, try to get yourself two big ones because you're probably going to have to swap something out in midseason because that isn't something you're going to be able to buy off the shelf anywhere. Greg, I don't know about you, but the number of folks that have come and, frankly, stopped out at the farm. I remember one day, vividly, Dan and I are wrestling a 900-pound rotary phase converter. Is that all it was? Hmm. Thought it was over two thousand, but okay. Yeah, w- with no assistance, onto various trolleys so we can move it over to convert our three-phase fan motors to single-phase, so we could actually turn it on and run it. And some guy in a Cadillac rolls in the driveway and wants to talk about the more quote complicated aspects of hop production because he's serious. Meanwhile, we're both getting hernias from trying to move this thing. This is why we never publish the address of the farm. <laughs> exactly. And it's, it's that same concept where people are like, well, this is just plug and play, right? This is all known. Why is this so difficult? I think most folks want an easy button for just about everything. And this, as other things we've talked about, it, it's math. It's very similar. We just had a conversation about nutrient management and water management. It's math. It's pre-planning. It's mechanics that some folks just are not comfortable with. I'm one of those folks. Um, And you want someone to give you the easy answer. So you want to be able to get in and turn the key and have the Beamer, you know, roar to life and, and everything's fine. And then you go have the oil change somewhere. But this is farming. And I can't stress that enough. And this is part of farming. When I first started farming, and I'm a mechanic, very mechanical guy. I remember the first time, all of a sudden, I had no hydraulic power on the tractor. What am I going to do? Am I going to call the dealer? I can't just like roll the tractor into the dealer because it's 85 miles away. So, so you buy a new tractor. Yeah. No, I'm, I don't have Dan money. Oh. So I'm like holy shit, what am I going to do? I got to figure this out for myself. Hop drying really isn't a whole lot different because ultimately it's you that are responsible. Do you understand, James, the principles of hydraulic pressure and pumps and valves? If you don't, you are at a significant handicap. The same thing goes with hop drying and those folks that really have studied and understand it and ask the questions and really have embraced all the nuances that are going to be successful. I'm letting that sink in. I think it's really important to understand. There are so many, you know, and we'll talk about harvesting and it's the same thing. That machine's going to break and break and break. And if you don't know how it works or have someone there that knows how it works, um, you're going to be dead in the water. How do I want to say this? And because I don't want people to misconstrue this, Dan, if People were going to ask for a magic dryer. Now, we understand it's unicorns aren't going to come in and fart on it, and magically it's going to be dry. But if they're like, how big does my dryer need to be? Let's say I am an acre or less. What are my options here for dryer design? Am I building this giant box with this fan that I may not be able to afford? Or is there a different way I can do this? And where is that scalability happen? So it's like Greg talked about in the first podcast. Your first year, small harvest, if you're less than an acre, lay it on some screens, 
The most important thing there is observing the drying process and seeing what's going on. The next year, you're going to want to build something so you can learn how this happens. You're going to build something with a box. You're going to want to get a fan. This might just be a simple furnace fan, whatever you can scrap out of a farm implement dealership, mm -hmm. a HVAC firm. Build something so you can see how it works. Hopefully, that'll be big enough to hold you through year three and maybe subsequent years. I don't know how big you're getting. Again, I don't know your harvest rate, your yield rate. These are all things that you're going to have to determine to determine how big your box is going to be. But at some point, you should hit some sort of plateau, right? Uh, okay. So now once you've got to that plateau, now you can start firming up your dryer design based on your historical yield and what you've been doing and how you've been doing, how well you've been doing, I guess. Um, and you can invest in getting a proper fan and getting proper methodology. Okay. No, I get it. Where do you want to go from there? <laughs> no, no, no. I, I understand that. And, and Greg, from your exposure to growers of various scales, is this concept of scalability present at day one? No. No, not at all. It's, I'd say most of the folks that we've talked to over the years either only want to go that one to three acre route and want to do it from the beginning. So they're, they're planning for that. Or when we get into that drying conversation, it's, well, I'll have to expand later, but I'm not going to build that big now because that, um, that cost versus power scale on fans goes like a hockey stick. It, it sure does. And it's a big decision to make. Do you drop the money now? Do you drop the money later? At some point, you're going to have to spend the money to build the dryer or you're throwing your product away. Mm -hmm. And we're talking a lot about building and building and building. And, you know, there are there are small harvesters out there. Of course, Wolf being the, the harvesting company. But you don't see much out there in terms of a turnkey dryer. And that's because of all of these nuances we've been talking about and all of these differences in what people need. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, guys. I don't think you can go anywhere and purchase a dryer to get delivered and just drop it into your yard. No, we tried that. We did. We tried sizing the perfect dryer to handle the one-day harvest rate of a Wolf 170 220. And I'm going to say we failed. Not because we didn't... We built it perfect to handle the harvest of our Wolf 170. The problem is everybody else had different yields. They had different harvest rates. They would had different harvest days. So for some people, our dryer was too big. For some people, our dryer was too small. It was never perfect. And then when people look at the cost of doing that, and, and this was not a plywood dryer with a couple of fans that fell off the back of a truck. This was engineered. It was 100% aluminum superstructure. It was food grade. And if people are like, well, how much would it cost to buy that? I can tell you what it cost to make it, $35,000. So, and then people are like, what? It costs, you know, half as much as a used Wolf 140 slash 170. Well, you have no problem dropping that money to harvest your crop, but now you don't want to drop that money to dry your crop. This is the real world of scaling up through hop production, and that's what it costs. It's a, an enormous amount of fabrication that needs to happen because none of this stuff is off a shelf. Now, the glory of scalability, though, 
is that little hop dryer you build the second or third year and its operation and the way it works and the fundamental concepts, you can scale those exact same fundamental concepts up as you get bigger and bigger and bigger. So that's why I encourage you to build a small dryer, figure how it works, see how it works on your hops, because as you get bigger, you're going to see the same effects happening. You're going to see the same um, effects on your hops, the same drying times, the same drying ratios. It's just you're building a bigger box with bigger fans, with bigger dehumidifiers, with, well, bigger heat if you go that route. So, Dan, we've talked a lot about all these different issues with drying and these different designs. There's a ton of stuff out there because, hey, if you don't know how to do something, you just Google it. Right. Google has the answer to everything, doesn't it? It does. It absolutely does. Do you have any input on things that you've seen out there that may or may not be the right direction for people to take? Where do I start? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Right. I, I mean, the home dryers are are incredible. And, and here's the thing. You know, we've been talking about our methodology. There's other people that have other ways of doing it. I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm not saying they're right. It all depends on what they're going for. If speed is what you want, use heat. If quality is what you want, use air and dehumidification. The key is, is getting the air flow through it. I've seen tractor trailers where they took half of the, the trailer and they put hops on one half and put screen in the whole bottom. And they said, hey, is, what do you think of this? I'm like, wow, this is great. Except I've got one question. You have the entire floor screened off, but you only have hops on the one half. Why is the air going to want to go through the hops? And the answer was, because that's where we drew the arrows, Dan. Oh, so so air is literate? Apparently. Ah, right. And very obedient. Much more obedient than my children. Because ah. if I drew arrows for my children and I said, I want you to walk from here to there following this path, they would go anywhere but that path. <laughs> They'll of take course. the path of least resistance. Right. Or the most persistence or annoyance to their father. Oh, well, well, that's what I do. Right. Yeah. But air, believe it or not, cannot read a drawing, mm. cannot follow arrows. You have to force it to go where you want it to go. Uh, one of the better designs I saw from a home grower, this was on a forum a decade ago. They took an old dresser, and I'm looking at a dresser here. And it's old. And it's old. It's, it's from the 20s. They cut a hole in the top, they cut a hole in the bottom, they replaced all the drawer bottoms with hardwire cloth. So mesh, yeah, like quarter-inch mesh. Yeah. Quarter-inch mesh. Yep. And they put hops in every single drawer. And uh, the fan, I think, was one of those old lady hair dryers that they would put on top of your head to dry your hair. <laughs> oh, sure. So they added a little bit of heat while moving a little bit of air, and man... It worked because yep. the air had nowhere to go but through the hops. Oh, so making, forcing it to go through the hop bed. Exactly. Is like number one. And you know, the, your comment about your children is well taken. Air, unlike children, you can predict where it's going to go if you build properly. <laughs> if you build it correct and use enough expandable spray foam. Oh, well, and duct tape. And duct tape. Yeah, no, and and, and baler no. wire. Let's not short metal foil tape here. Oh, metal foil tape is your absolute go-to. This is true. Exactly. So, Gorilla tape is just a little bit too expensive. It metal is. Foil it's tape. a little spendy. That's what James uses for his projects. He gives right. Dan the cheap stuff. Yes. Metal foil tape. 350 a roll. I would say, though, Greg, that 
something I've seen and I know Dan has commented on from time and time again. And and honestly, many of these folks are colleagues of ours, but people at universities get grants to do the same thing over and over and over again. And the data are out there, but they come up with these crazy dryers. But because it's a university-funded project, that automatically gives it validity. Dan, do you have anything to say about that? You know what universities have that the rest of us don't have? Money. <laughs> Not always. Not, like what sometimes, Yeah, sometimes they have money. They have these amazing things. They used to be called slaves. Now they're called undergraduates. Oh, right. So they have massive amounts of free labor. I don't want to name, call anything out, but I've seen this design done over and over and over again, where you have multiple trays. The idea being, if I break... Oh, like Vermont. Oh, jeez. I think I've seen that design in our barn. Oh, well, yes, but I did that for a different reason. That was for experimental reasons, Greg. Well, yeah, then we shared that at a, <laughs> at a conference with so, Vermont. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, anyway. So the idea uh, is if I break the hops up into multiple layers, that eliminates the pressure drop. Wrong. Whether I'm going through a two-foot bed all at once or a two-foot bed one inch at a time, I'm still going through two feet of hops. I'm still going to have the same pressure drop. But what I do have now is instead of one box to load or one bin to load, I have, I don't know, let's see, Mm, two times 12 (laughs) is 24. I now have 24 trays that I have to load and slide into this Mm -hmm. thing. And some of them are very high in the air, if I recall correctly. Yeah. Well, if I recall, now, as you recall, Greg, I made one similar to that that was four foot by four foot. The purpose of that tray dryer, though, was to get some pressure drop data and and break things up. But I recall you were helping me unload that, and here we were with these trays that were stacked six six inches deep and trying to finagle them out of this. And I think more hops are hitting the floor than we're actually getting into our bucket. Yep. So I would say that... You know, if you're looking at that kind of a dryer, you got to figure out, am I drying one plant at a time? <laughs> am I drying two plants at a time? And in an acre, you know, I've got a thousand plants. Is that really realistic? And I don't think, I think the answer is no. But I think, you know, at least for for this episode, we're, we're running out of time and we've given a lot of folks a lot of things to think about. And I want to hear back from our listeners with questions for Dan on the specifics of their dryer design and give us some parameters so we can talk about them. We want to have this be an open forum. Yep. We want to know, of course, what your, what your harvest is going to look like, what your variety spread is going to look like, because he can only, he can't answer these questions in a vacuum. <laughs> um, ah, so, and, and pictures, Please, pictures of your designs, and we will we will praise them, and we will also make fun of them. Oh, totally. We will absolutely make fun of them. <laughs> I love openly mocking people's designs, <laughs> but only because I've probably tried it myself and discovered why and how it failed. Yeah, well, we have a lot of failures, and that's something Greg and I are not shy about sharing. If I come back, do I get more bourbon? Is there any left? 